As I mentioned, this week and next week will feature two re-airs from this past year. The show will be taking a break so that I can fully enjoy the holidays with my family and get the show ready for 2020. I hope that you all have a wonderful holiday with your loved ones, whatever it is that you're celebrating this time of year. Safe travels to everyone as you venture out to celebrate, attend shows, and such. I am beyond grateful for so much in my life, but especially for Umphreys McGee, the music that they make, the people I've met because of them, and the fact that I get to talk about their music on this show as my job. Thank you so much to everyone that listens and has supported the show in any way. You guys are so awesome, and I'm so grateful that you take the time to listen to me yak about Umphreys every week. I'm super excited to bring you guys new episodes in 2020, and there's a bunch of new exciting things on the horizon for the show as well, so be on the lookout for that. Enjoy these two interviews from earlier in the year, and if you're all caught up, why not dig into the vault and check out what the show was up to in 2018? Some really, really great recaps and interviews, although I was such a podcast noob at the time, but still some really great content and stories. Thank you guys so much. Happy holidays and happy new year. Your scene to chat about life, family, and of course, Humphreys McGee. I'm Sarah Jehenia, podcast host, writer, mom of three, wife, and total Humphrey. Are you prepared for what comes next? Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode of the show. I hope you were able to check out last week's episode, which featured my chat with fellow female umfreak, Ashley. There is a link in the show notes where you can find that, as well as where you can find information about getting tickets for the Louisville after party at Gravely Brewing Company. That after party will feature Chris, Joel, and Marcus Rezac on August 23rd. Ashley talks about that after party in our conversation, so check that out if you haven't given it a listen. We are planning on going to the Louisville show this summer, so hopefully it works out that we can make the after party as well. Before we get into the meat of this week's show, I did want to announce that I have teamed up with Swift Charge. And if you were at summer camp, perhaps you saw their booths or maybe you used their service. And I did mention that I used their recharging batteries the entire festival. And I will say it was so nice to not have to worry about my phone dying over the weekend um, when I was trying to keep notes for the recap and, of course, doing my interviews. And if you don't know, Swift Charge, you purchase a battery pack and it suction cups to the back of your phone and then plugs in and your phone is charging while you rage. It's such an awesome idea and when the battery is dead, you just head to their booth and switch it out and the battery pack is yours. 
So I have mine. So next year when I go to summer camp, I have it and I can just exchange it and I have charging for the entire weekend. It's such an awesome service. Swift Charge will be providing portable charging. Yes, that includes for your vape pens as well at live music festivals throughout the summer. I know they will be at Electric Forest at the end of June, and they have a whole bunch of other festivals listed on their website as well. There is a link in the show notes where you can find that. And exclusively for my listeners, if you use promo code Sarah, S-A-R-A, at checkout, when you pre-order a charger for your next festival, you'll receive 10% off. That's promo code Sarah, S-A-R-A, at checkout, and you'll receive 10% off. All right, so let's get to it. This week, I am very, very excited to be bringing you my chat with Umphrey's lighting director, Jefferson Waffle. He was incredibly kind enough to sit down with me Sunday afternoon at summer camp after the Umphrey set, and we talked for about an hour, which was very, very cool. We did not talk about his departure from Umphrey's. That was announced only two days after him and I talked. So you can imagine my shock when I saw the news um, on Tuesday. And, you know, of course, we had just talked to each other. So I was like, oh, my God, what? Um, And if you don't know what I'm talking about, Waffle will be leaving as lighting director at the end of 2019. And I know that we are all super sad to see him go. But there is no doubt very exciting new things around the corner for him. And I am looking forward to seeing who Umphrey's hires and what they do with the band in the next coming years. And thank you to Jefferson for the opportunity to sit down and talk with you. Uh, Shout out to Rob Turner for hooking this up. I am so grateful for all of his continued support for my show. And if you haven't checked out his show, Inside Out with Turner and Seth, definitely give that a listen. I know he has had Jefferson on his show, as well as Jake and Bayless, um, possibly Ryan, I'm not sure, um, but I will link all of his um, Umphreys-related episodes in the show notes. Um, And in addition to just a really great chat with Jefferson about a variety of topics, my interview features some cameos by Umphreys McGee manager Vince Iwinski, Mr. Joel Cummins, and former lighting director Adam Budney. So be sure to listen for those. And without further ado, here is my chat with Umphreys McGee lighting director Jefferson Waffle. Enjoy. So I'm here with Jefferson Waffle, lighting designer for Umphreys McGee. It is Sunday afternoon at summer camp after the Umphreys Sunday set. So first I want to thank you for taking time after this whole weekend to be with me and you know sit down and chat. So thank you very much for that. Um, Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, so let's start with the weekend. Um, what do you do to prepare for a festival like this? Well, there's, there's a couple different angles. One of them is learning the music. So if there's any new covers or rarities or special guests, for example, the horns from 
here come the mummies. Mm-hmm. Not that I would need to prepare for that. That's more of a, in a kind of the short term you prepare because you have to have, you know, from a practical standpoint, you would have to have lights set up in a different position for them, right. from, you know, because they're way off on the side. Mm-hmm. Um, but big picture, you're designing the rig. So I've been working with Ecto Productions, who's our vendor out of Chicago, and they provide lighting for this stage. And going back and forth with, you know, what works both from a design standpoint and also the limitations of any stage, weight limitations or whatnot. We tried to do something different this year with four square trusses. Mm-hmm. And that puts different strains in different places that I'm not used to, that you know, because we've never done it before. So that was a challenge. But everyone kind of came together and, and pulled through. And, uh, yeah, that, that's the preparation somewhere Very around nice. there. So last night got rained out for, you know, anyone that's listening and featuring doesn't know, last night got rained out. So what happens when the rain starts to come down, um, you know, as a crew standpoint, you know, how do you guys kind of progress from, oh, it's raining to maybe we should definitely call this? Yeah, well, there's, there's standards that, you know, are... Our production manager, the stage manager, the production manager from the festival, and our management kind of all have to adhere to. But ultimately, it starts with Grant, who's the production manager for the stage that we're on. And he makes the call based on miles per hour. And I, it's not really my world, so I can't tell you, but I've seen the sheet before, and it's, you know, in increments of 10 miles an hour, all the precautions that you need to take. You know, at first, it's warn everyone then it's, you know, batten down the hatches, then it's take cover. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure where we got to last night, but at a certain point, which luckily coincided with right around where our separate was going to be, right. the, the winds and also obviously lightning is a factor as well, I should right. point out. Both yeah. of those, and again, I'm not sure of the specifics, but both of those just kind of happened at the same time. And unfortunately, we weren't able to come back because of, you know, Things like the curfew, we have, you know, it takes a certain amount of time, even if it had stopped. It takes a matter of time for our crew to get all of our gear mm-hmm. dry again. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, if you think about it, like a rain delay in baseball. They have right. to factor in, like, okay, the grounds crew has to come out now, and, you know, some cities have different curfews, so at a certain point, you have to cut your losses, and unfortunately, right. we just ran out of time. Right. But they, they made up for it this afternoon, Absolutely. so I'm totally pleased it. It seems like every year, no matter what happens, it always is sunny on Sunday. Yeah. It's like magic. And right? it's always Sun, sunny Sunday. and like beating down on you too. Like there was one point where I'm like, oh, it's so hot, but at yeah. least it's so, not raining right now. But I, Soundgarden's my shit. I had to go out there. I was cracking people in the head. Oh, nice uh, white wedding the other night. Thank you. That was, I was very impressed by that. That was very nice. I, uh, <laughs> I dusted, I, I dusted, I haven't done that in like 12 years. That was, yeah, it was very it nice. It was actually a bigger bust out than funny story about Outshine. They were supposed to play it last night in the second set. Yeah. Brendan texted me the set list earlier in the day and I saw Outshine and I said, this is just like a stupid pun that kind of the dynamic I have with these guys. Your your humor. Yeah, my humor. And I said, oh, it'd be funny if you played it during the day, but probably only to me. And he goes, yeah, kind of like, yeah, it would only be funny to you. And then they put it on the set list today. So I saw him and I said, hey, that's funny, man. (laughs) Joke's on somebody. Yeah. Hopefully Chris Cornell heard that and enjoyed it. Right. I'm sure he did. It was a very nice, uh, very nice tribute to him. That was uh, Vince Iwinski, band manager for people out there. Yeah. That was a nice yeah. impromptu. And that was, I decided to stay up and go to Fate Night the other night and 
pleasantly surprised by his rendition of White Wedding by Billy Idol. Oh, I didn't even know that that happened. It blew me away. I mean, I was standing there and I'm like, okay, I guess that I'm being completely blown away by this right now. Who knew? <laughs> it's very good. It's uh, totally worth staying up until 4 o'clock in the morning. Absolutely. For. Absolutely. All right, so let's switch gears here and talk about the Anchor Drop films that you have been bringing out. Um, first, let's talk about whose idea that project was, how it kind of came together. Can you tell us that? Sure. Well, it always originates with Kevin. Yeah. And, you know, he's, we just, we just saw Vince. Uh, Kevin is also one of the managers, but he handles a lot of the creative side. And so Kevin came to me, and this is what typically, the same thing happened with Real to Real. Kevin comes to me with an idea, mm-hmm. and then I go, oh, well, it's great, but let's do it bigger, and, you know, because it's hard for me to do a project any way other than like you know giving 110 yeah, percent and i'm not like that in, yeah. in every area of life you know i'm not like <laughs> my fiance would tell you but when it comes to like my creative projects i just can't help myself it's like a sickness yeah i mean not with a negative connotation but right I just, you just put your whole heart into something that yeah you're like on. i'm always updating the positions of the lights during the show if i know my eye picks up something that's not perfectly aligned or symmetrical the way i, I want it to be and, I do it even on the last song of the last set, just during Outshine, and I don't even realize it until I catch myself, right. and I take you myself out of the moment, and I say, stop working and enjoy it, because no one's going to notice that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, not to get off on a tangent, but no, no. Kevin came to me and said, we, let's do eight, eight of these little vignettes to promote the 15th anniversary of Anchor Drums. And I was thinking about how I would break up these eight you know, segments or episodes. And I volunteered to do more because it was easier for me to conceptualize one song per episode. Instead of trying to figure out, okay, there's 13 or whatever tracks in the album, how are we going to break up these eight stories? It was easier for me to just say one-to-one, everything, and we'll come up with, we'll come up with the visuals. And that was something that I learned, it was a a big lesson I learned since doing Real to Real. Right. Um, My background is in journalism, but I had never really done a documentary. And I mean, it's similar, but there's obviously nuance to it and differences. So the biggest thing was we had all this footage for Real to Real. And my philosophy, and I remember saying this to Kevin, was let's find the best footage we have, because a lot of the footage is shit. No offense to those guys, but like the technology wasn't good back then. Right. It's not like iPhones. Right. A lot of it just was dark and you can't use it. So we'd go through and just get rid of because for me it was like whittling it down I had like over a terabyte of footage right and so I was just getting rid of as much as I could and like okay this one has a lot of light because there's sunlight coming in the window and the van or whatever mm-hmm. um, and then after we did that it was like okay let's try to find a story but since then I've learned by watching a lot of other documentaries and, and just kind of taking mental notes uh, that's backwards it, it should always start with the story and then you find the visuals to match because you can always find a photo of somebody looking out a window that like matches a sad moment right you know you pick that up it's like they're just showing a photo of him sneezing and they're trying to make it seem like he's sad or i don't know yeah no that makes sense we're um all about the story like i I watch every documentary on netflix i can find Mm -hmm. and it's always you know like the three identical strangers you know or the or the bank pizza bomber or whatever it's these stories that you're like oh my god you want to go tell your friend did you hear about the story these three guys right not to spoil anything but so so now, you know, five years later after doing Real to Real, 
it was okay let's find whoever wrote the song and ask them for their best story of like what do the lyrics mean or and this is the other angle was I was trying not to repeat anything that happened to also be in real to real right so plunger for example we had already done a whole scene about that right so we had to try to find other stories uh, same with tinkles Mm-hmm. We had already told the story of what it meant, mm-hmm. and, and this time it was let's concentrate on the music. Which that was very cool. I personally love every single one of them. I think it's, oh, sure. it's very cool. But I like I nerd out on all that stuff anyways. I just I, I love it. I think you've done such a fantastic job on them. Um, is there any plans to release them like as a whole and and put them out as, as you know kind of a whole thing? That I don't know. That's that's definitely a Kevin question. Um, there's so many different platforms out there now that I've right. kind of lost track. You know, every time you think you've got it kind of figured out, six months later, the entire landscape has yeah. changed. Yeah. So with all the streaming services, and I'm not even really sure which one is the future. Now, Apple has a streaming service that's coming out, or yeah. not even, they already obviously have yeah, streaming, they but have they have one. their own shows that they're producing. Yeah, now. they're doing their own thing. And then I know, like, even, like, Disney Channel is going to do, like, their own streaming, like, whole thing, so... Yeah, so, like, if, if Apple wanted to host it, I would be okay with that. Yeah, that'd be cool. <laughs> so. Let's put it out there. Let's, let's get... Because I know a lot of people would like to see it, like, you know, as a whole. It's, it's really interesting to hear, you know, the different sides of the song and, you know, where they were when they were writing them. And it's, it's a very, very cool thing. So what are we... We're on number six. And you said there's eight of them? No, the, originally there was going to be eight. But, okay. But now there's going to be, I believe, 13. 13, okay. Is that... I think I should really know off the top of my head how many tracks. tracks there are. I but think I, there is. We're, we were talking about this last night during the rain delay, Kevin and I, like, if we're going to treat Jajunk Part 1 as its own episode and Part 2 as a different one, and I thought that that was kind of silly. So I'm thinking, mm-hmm. and I should probably figure it out because it's due in two days. <laughs> I do them each week. It's not like we have them all ready oh, to go. Oh, already. Wow. Okay. It's just See, I the way my life them, is. Like, bang no, it takes so many hours that I just do it as right as it comes. Yeah. You know, and, like, and sometimes it's maybe like better that way because when I know for me when I do like episodes ahead of time, there's always something that I wind up going back and like re-recording or something I want to add. So then you're just doing more work. You're doing more than you needed to than just. A very good friend of mine, uh, Clayton Halsey, who taught me most of what I know as an editor, he has a saying that I think about all the time, and it's, you never finish editing. You just run out of time. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And that that's, goes back to what I was saying earlier about just always wanting to make everything perfect. Mm-hmm. That's exactly it in a nutshell. Because if it's due, you know, Tuesday, we, we had to make an arbitrary deadline for me because Kevin needs to view it and make sure that you know the content he, is, he fact, first of all he fact checks it because he was there right i wasn't around in the, those days right so he fact checks it he also has to make a decision you know if there's anything and this doesn't happen very often but if there's anything borderline we're not sure if a band member is going to want that included right kevin makes that call and if right. he needs to literally check with the band member he's kind of like the liaison for that right so that takes at least a day yeah. So we have to kind of make this arbitrary deadline, and then every time it's like, okay, I got you this, but I'm going to work through the night and give you a better one in the morning. So like he checks everything 24 hours before it gets posted, but then I'm still making changes up to the last minute wow. if I need to, just because my OCD like forces me to. Yeah, and but the funny thing is, you would never be able to tell, you know, like the products that we see when they when they post it. It's 
you would not be able to tell that it was like, you know, last minute edit, quick before you do it. It's, they're, they're very nicely done. Thank very you. Nicely done. Um, so, can you tell me which, do you have like a favorite song that was yours to, you know, kind of make the part about? Is there like a particular... For video? Yeah. For this particular yeah, series? Yeah, for this the series. I feel like Plunger, because first of all, there is so much content. We're drawing from a lot of the, you know, a lot of the original footage that Ryan and Kevin shot. They each had, I don't know if they were matching, but they each had, you know, state of the art at the time in 2002 mm -hmm. or whatever it was, these little camcorders. And uh, they just kind of arbitrarily turned it on more during certain songs. I think everyone was really excited about Plunger because it was, I assume, kind of cutting edge when it came out. Were you around back then? Were you a fan? I, no, I did not get into Umphreys until 2007. Okay. So. My, and again, I, I'm not a historian, but based on everything that I've kind of experienced with Real Thrill and this, it, to me it seems like, you know, Chris had joined the band, so now he's, mm -hmm. this is the first time he has had a role in the studio recording, mm -hmm. which is a big deal because when he first joined and you're playing someone else's parts, that's, that's the way Mikey had interpreted the music, right. which is great in its own right, but everyone has their own personal flair, so right. it's, it's different. It's like playing a cover versus a song that you had yeah. original input in its writing. So, and it was right in the wheelhouse that, you know, Chris and Jake bring more of that like hard edge, metal mm -hmm. edge. I mean, Ryan too, but it was like right in both their wheelhouses. And I just feel like it was the right time, right place. Um, and also of course the poignant meaning of the lyrics with yeah. Chris uh, joining and, and Mikey just leaving. So mm -hmm. um, that was probably my favorite. And it was also such a challenge just because again, we had already done an entire scene about it in real to real mm -hmm. and I know that there's not a lot of people out here that you know maybe there's a hundred people that saw both I'm one of the I don't, I don't know how to track <laughs> I love things. real to real I think it's a fantastic documentary it really is thank you but I, I I think about that a lot because it's you need to know who your audience is and, and I often wonder like five years ago we did four screenings and you know you could stream it but I don't know how many of those people are you know on Instagram or on YouTube watching the current one, so I don't know how much of the backstory to tell. It's always kind of this mm -hmm. this struggle of like, who is the the common person watching this, mm -hmm. and what is their knowledge? And I usually think of my own like mom as an example because she is a casual Umphreys fan, but a huge music fan. Mm -hmm. She supports Umphreys because she supports me, and she comes to the show and she enjoys it. But she probably couldn't name any of the songs. Right. But she loved. I mean, she comes and she's like, "Oh, that was great." But I always think like, will she understand the story? Right. And that's, that's a good a parameter. Good, yeah, yeah. Because I think about that too, like when I'm doing episodes and, you know, like if I'm talking about like a song that was covered or, you know, kind of like the history of a song I like to include in, in there. And sometimes I'm like, well, do I really, like how much do I want to go into this? Because, you know, like what do people already know? And I don't want to sound like you're repeating yourself, you know, and sound redundant. So I totally I understand about that too. Um, okay. So let's switch directions again. Um, tell me, what is your favorite room to do the lighting in? I think it's changed over the years. I used to say the Taft Theater in Cincinnati, and I still love the Taft. Nothing, okay. nothing against it. But we've we've been lucky enough to play in a lot of bigger and just other rooms since I originally said that years ago and 
again, that's still one of the best theaters just because of the uh, the large dimensions. Um, but now I would say, like you know, the Fox in Oakland, the Capitol Theater in Portchester, both of those I mentioned because they they have in-house lights, lighting fixtures that are the same ones that we tour with, uh, Mac Threes and Auras and even Sharpies, which we don't really tour with anymore, but we used them this weekend. So it's very easy for us to add our own lights and integrate our system and clone everything in. Cloning is a, a term that I think is pretty self-explanatory, right? We, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's, it's much more compatible when you're using the same fixture types. Right, right. And that's kind of rare that a, that a venue would have that quality. Right. There's not a lot of venues that have that kind of top of the line. Um, those fixtures are now a little bit out of date, but you know, in the last 10 years, they were, they were pretty state-of-the-art at the time. So those are probably my favorite. I love outdoor venues um, if the conditions are perfect, but it's yeah. very rare that the wind and the rain and you know, the dust all cooperate. All cooperate and make it good. And that's something that has changed since I was going to shows as a fan versus working as an LD. When I was a fan, I didn't really notice those little details. Right. And I kind of wish I could go back to that, you know, blissful ignorance. Right, right. But I don't think I ever can. And now at an outdoor show, I'm like, oh, the, the haze isn't perfect. And so the beams of light are incomplete. And, mm-hmm. you know, now it's raining and now it's muddy. And, yeah. But as a fan, I used to love just being outdoors and the freedom right. of your hair and the wind or whatever. So, right. um, you know your perspective changes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> How much like say do you have in picking a new venue because you know you are the lighting director. So like oh. how much of a of a say when they're like okay, well we're going to play this venue for the first time, do you like come into the meeting and are like, well, maybe I don't want to really work in that room. That doesn't ever happen. Okay. Um, okay. The my impression of the way it happens is Joel sits in on a lot of the calls okay. with Kevin and Vince and our um, our agent, who is okay. uh, Pincus, okay. who is a great guy, and he's exactly what you would envision an agent being. Mm-hmm. And I say that with all love. Yeah. Uh, so, but I, I think that the four of them take into account a number of factors, um, mostly things that I don't know really know about, but it obviously right. has to do with numbers and the markets and the strategy of how long it's been since we were there and if we have a festival offer and then there's a radiance clause radius sorry mm-hmm. radiance is a type of hazer so that's kind of a one-track mind <laughs> uh, the radius clause so for okay. example this year we're playing high sierra okay right mm-hmm. okay i get confused sometimes i'm sure there's so many like things so, and places to remember i'm sure it's it's hard for you to keep track of you're like yeah. where am i going so we haven't done high sierra in a number of years mm-hmm. but obviously we love High Sierra, everyone loves High Sierra, so yeah. most festivals don't want to have a band like Humphreys come back too often, because then it becomes, you know, summer camp is obviously it's our, yeah, partly our festival, thing, yeah. but a festival like that, or, you know, Bonnaroo, for a while Bonnaroo was like every other year, and, mm-hmm. and now I think it's a little bit longer, just because people try to do different things, so for us to go back to High Sierra, that kind of changes the whole routing because now we have to do other shows around there to make the you know to offset the cost of getting our gear out there and us flying out there there's just so many factors involved so mm-hmm. I don't think the lighting is really um, yeah. much of a factor although they do take it into account I'm sure with you know festival offers you know we always try to play as late as we can 
right. but a lot of times that's dictated by you know schedule yeah, and you know how big of a headliner are you yeah, at the festival yeah absolutely um so what is your favorite umphrey song to do lights for historically it's always been ocean billy yeah yeah and uh again this is, goes back to what i was saying before about not knowing how many people know the backstory because i've told this story a lot of times so I don't want to bore your audience, but if you don't know... <laughs> no, that, go ahead, please. In a nutshell, the, the Reader's Digest version is that uh, I was on Jam Cruise as a fan back when I was ignorant and blissful. Yeah. And, uh, and I was with Rob Turner, who we mentioned earlier, yeah. and uh, Humphreys played Ocean Billy. I think it was pretty new at the time. And I just had this vision in my head of, you know, blue and red, and, you know, I was... My, my mind was probably expanded a little bit. Hey, Joel. Hi, Hi how, how are you? I'm actually taking off. But good to see you this yeah, weekend. Likewise, have a good one. Yeah, I was just telling her about the first time I heard Ocean Billy. Yeah. You know not, that story. Not a bad one. Yeah. <laughs> it was on Jam Cruise. Right? On the ocean. Yeah. On the ocean, sunrise. It was the whole, the whole thing. Uh, no, you were the headlining slot. Oh, okay, nice. I think. That, I remember that was the... You know, funny you're going back and forth but because everybody's going back and forth you don't feel as weird right the boat was swaying in like yeah. seven <laughs> yeah somehow amazing <laughs> See you guys. See you. take care so i had this vision in my head and uh again not to say anything bad about adam bunny who was just standing here one of mm-hmm. one of my best friends he's he's amazing but not to take anything with he was doing something again in his wheelhouse like right. the way he was interpreting it and yeah. I don't even remember what it was and I don't even remember why I had that thought in my head because I didn't have any intention of ever working front freeze at the time right and I didn't have that vision with any other song right. and it wasn't even that grand of a vision it was basically just they were counting it or I was counting it in seven that's why I made that joke to, yeah. to Joel just now and I think years later we determined when I, I we were doing some kind of a tutorial at do you remember those camps we did in New York? Yep. Summer, summer school. Summer school. Yep. Thank you. And I was doing yep. a lighting workshop and I was explaining the same story and I, I counted the way that I was interpreting it. And yeah. I, I think it was, it was wrong, but Stasek counts it the way I count it. So we're both counting it wrong and we're both doing it correctly. So it's just, okay. it's one of those nuanced things that our, our drummer, Chris and Jake, and I'm sure most of the guys could explain better than I could. Right. But as long as the end result is correct. Right. Yeah. As long so, as you both get to the same place, it's. I don't think it's actually in seven. I think I count it in seven, and it's in six and two and three or something. Anyway. So. Ocean do, Billy. Do you have any like history in music at all? Only as a. Uh, only as, as a. Yeah, I mean, I played all the instruments, but only as like a hobby. Okay. You know, like I, it was always in my home. My dad plays guitar. Okay. I always had a guitar leaning up against the wall in the corner my okay. whole life. Okay. But I was never like I never committed to it. They always say you have to put in ten thousand hours. Right. And I put in my ten thousand hours to video and my ten thousand hours to lighting, and maybe I got to like maybe I'm around like eight thousand hours on guitar. Yeah. I'm okay, I'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> when you have some free time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can play everything. I just don't like rip solos. Right. But okay. like, I can learn anything. Yeah. That's my so background. Someday we'll get, we'll get a waffle sit in maybe. Maybe. <laughs> um, so when Umphreys is going to 
debut a new song that they've they've written they're going to debut it what is the process of i mean so obviously with like ocean billy or a song that's been around a while there's probably like a typical sort of like thing that you do so when it comes to a new song like how does that process go to be ready to light a new song when they debut it well it depends lately i feel like maybe more than once maybe the last couple albums they've not played any of the songs until the album came out so they had like the entire album worth of content released at once mm-hmm. am i remembering that correctly mm-hmm. I, I lost track with all yeah. that it's you it's us it's not you it's us i yeah there was like three versions right the b-sides yeah. yep yep so in a situation like that it's a little bit daunting because it's like here are 10 or 12 new songs go mm-hmm. and actually it's funny because talk about like you know being nervous and on the spot like we did an event at the park west where i think the band played a set or maybe they did and again i'm not remembering this correctly but they did some kind of thing and then afterwards they just played the album it was a listening party yep and i ran they wanted me to run lights for it so i had to like try to learn all the songs and then run lights for the first time without a band because when the band's on stage you can watch them and kind of have a visual cue the -hmm. way that you would watch a conductor if you're in an orchestra right so i watched either Jake or whoever soloing you watch and then they cue Chris the drummer and then he cues things so we're all in sync but to do all these songs for the first time without having the visual aid and to have all six band members watching not that yeah. they were because they were signing stuff and everyone's socializing but they were watching more than they normally do because right. normally they're facing the other direction yeah um, so that was probably not my most accurate set because that's a, to learn all that at once right. But normally, to get back to your question, normally it's just a new song, one, and that's very easy because they play it a bunch of times at soundcheck. I, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll go sit in in the rehearsal room, and it usually comes pretty quickly. In my head, I just say, okay, here's the chorus. Um, and sometimes Chris or Brendan will have something that they'll suggest, but that doesn't happen very often. And when it does happen, I, I welcome it. Like, I love having yeah. that direction because I don't normally. Yeah. And it's always very vague, too. It's always like, hey, this is, I was thinking of a stop cue here. Right. And a couple times it's happened and I said, oh, I was thinking the same thing. So, like, we were on the same page. That's very fun. What is one venue that you've not worked in yet that you would like to and do lighting for? Madison Square Garden. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I bet. I mean, that's the one that you hear most LDs say was one of their biggest moments mm-hmm. you know LDs that have done it in the past mm-hmm. and and that's one that I just I haven't had the chance I, I feel like I'll get there someday you know it might not be headlining it may be as part of some event or right. maybe it, it'll be a sporting event you know there's lots of ways to yeah, get there yeah you never know you never there's know so maybe I'll do paths. Disney on ice or <laughs> I know people that <laughs> do that know. it's a great yeah thing. yeah for sure you never know um all right so let's take it back let's get into your history um my friend Sharon Steinberg wanted me to say hello to you I've known her for 25 years I think she did say that she is actually a member of the um parents group on Facebook so um, when I told her that I was interviewing you she said hey hey." so passing that along for her um she did tell me that she's she's so sweet she's such a nice woman um she did tell me that you had a radio show back in college called Space 
Jam. So talk about that. Wow, from the archive. Yeah, she uh, took me way back. <laughs> well, it was Space Jam. Okay. All right. And uh, it was before Michael Jordan's movie called Space Jam. Okay. So now it sounds like the epitome of cliche. Yeah. But again, this was before anyone used the term jam band, really. And okay. if people were using that term, it was not in the public vernacular, as far as I know, because um, a gentleman I worked with for many years, Dean Budnick, had written a book called Jam Bands and started the website jambands.com as a way to promote the book. Okay. I was, I think, one of the first hires, and I did the daily news for jam bands, and that's when the term started to get used more because other, you know, there's limited places on the web in 1996 mm -hmm. or 1997. Um, there was our good friend Andy Gadiel had started Jam Base, mm -hmm. and so the term started bubbling up, but uh, it wasn't the way it became over the next 20 years. There was no Coachella, there was no Bonnaroo. Actually, I think there was Coachella wrong genre. There was no Bonnaroo yet. Mm -hmm. I think Gathering of the Vibes had just started and it was maybe in the first year or two, right? Right, because Jerry died in 95 and that's when they started yeah. probably the following year. Yeah. So there was a show there prior to me called Psychedelic Crunch. Again, okay. we were coming up with ways of describing this music. Right. Improvisational rock was another way I described it. Um, so I would go in on Sundays and I wanted to get on the air so badly and I didn't get on my first year at Emerson and that was a real kind of reality check because I had come from Fitchburg State where I had been kind of a big fish in a small pond there was no real broadcasting program there mm -hmm. and I you know worked at television stations and radio stations in high school and so I had a lot of experience and so I had a very easy time to, it was kind of like whatever you want to do here are the keys to the TV and radio station because nobody else really cares and then I got to Emerson, and these were all the hotshot broadcasters from all around the country. So I didn't get on the air, and I was like devastated. Yeah. And so I went, and I, I was a producer on a blues show, and I, I worked with an amazing guy named Jack. And, uh, you know, thank God, I, that's, I saw the, the Derek Trucks band when he was 16. I came in and played on the blues show. Wow. And, it, you know, I got my foot in the door, and then eventually the girl who was doing Psychedelic Crunch was going to graduate and they said if you come in on Sundays over the summer to fill in like we need someone to fill in nobody else like everyone's on vacation it's like the least competitive time of the year but the you know it's a big radio station WRS in Boston and so it stayed on you know year-round they had a lot of listeners and I said hell yeah like I'll volunteer over the summer when everyone else is at yeah. the beach and it wasn't every Sunday, it was like, you know, four or five Sundays over the course of the summer when she was on vacation. And so I did that all summer and I had a blast and, uh, and then she graduated and I got the show and I did it for two years. And the thing that was so great about it, and just again, right time, right place, was they had a giant space that they converted into a recording studio and they had top of the line gear. So these bands would come through and we could record them live and it sounded like studio quality. I mean, they're in a soundproof studio with multi-track DAT recorders. And so I would have these jam bands come through like Strange Folk and Percy Hill and Mo. That's where I first met Mo. Wow. They did an acoustic set in there. String Cheese did an acoustic set. Bela Fleck and the Fleck Tones. Wow. Uh, Aquarium Rescue Unit. I mean, at the time, these were like 
these were big bands. These were the only bands that yeah. really were in our scene. I mean, there were the Spin Doctors and Blues Traveler, but they were a little bit... Kusakuka, don't forget that. I'm exactly. Sure. <laughs> oh, Big they Blue were, Family as well, yeah. or whatever that was. Big Blue. Yeah. Those, were the two, those were the two Memorial Day weekend like festivals before any festivals, right? Like this and those two, and there wasn't Bonnaroo or anything like well, that? Well, we were saying the Gathering of the Vibes was just starting oh, yes. to... Mm-hmm. It started as like Gathering of the Tribes, or my... This is way too long ago. It may have. Don't quote me on that. I don't know either. Okay. (laughs) Where were we? Um. We were talking about the festivals. Yes. You were talking about. I was like listening to what he was saying, and I lost my train of thought too. (laughs) Um. Space Jam. Yes. You were talking about the bands at the time. Right. So they would just. It was convenient routing-wise because a lot of bands are driving around the Northeast. Wetlands Preserve in New York was one of the, you know, places where all these jam bands would play. Did you ever see any shows there? Oh yeah, tons. Oh, that's awesome. Because my first experience as a lighting designer was when I managed a band called Uncle Sammy. Okay. And we would play at the Wetlands in the basement a lot. I think we we definitely played on the main stage. We headlined the main stage a few times. But that wasn't until you, you know, a few years later. The first couple times was in the basement, and it was an amazing experience. So there was lots of bands driving through town on a Sunday, mm-hmm. and so they didn't have any other radio stations that were reaching that many people and wanted to play yeah. their music. It was right. kind of rare, so it was mutually beneficial. You know, I, that's where I met most of the people that I'm still friends with. You know, yeah. I was lucky enough to be in a position to expose their music and they were like oh this is a great opportunity for us so they got something out of it and it, we all appreciated each other you know what i mean right. everyone wins this, everyone like, wins this friendship and, yeah. and did this whole thing it's very cool so let's talk about you going from that and you said you know you were doing journalism and everything so going from that to lighting and you worked for mo for a couple of years is there lighting five, director yeah. for five years which is when i started getting into mo was when you worked for them um, and then you went over to Umphreys, and that's when I followed. So maybe it's you. Maybe it's you I'm following. I don't know. Um, so talk about working for Mo. How did that come about? And then, like you said, you worked for them for five years. So talk about how you started working for them. So I was doing lights for Uncle Sammy, and I remember there were some other bands that had lighting designers who had purchased lights. Like they had invested thousands of dollars in, in lighting systems and then would rent their gear to, you know, like start their own companies and rent their gear and make their money back. Right. Makes business, like great business sense. Mm-hmm. I didn't have the capital to do that. So I remember thinking like, I've kind of hit a ceiling with Uncle Sammy because they're a small band playing mostly bars. Wetlands was a, on the big side. Um, but I don't have any capital to invest like $100,000 in the lighting system. Right. So I love this craft and I love the creativity, but we're kind of, we're at the venue we go into whatever they have we have to use we can't like bring in our own gear which is it's a big step for a band when you can start carrying your own production mm-hmm. and I remember thinking like I love lighting but like someday I would love to work for a band that like carries their own gear rents their own gear has their own truck has tour buses and it was one of those I had a conversation with a friend and the friend was friends with Topper their manager and mm-hmm. it was like be careful what you wish for because I had the conversation with him on the phone and the next day he was having a conversation with Topper and Topper was looking for a light guy and this guy recommended me and it was just one of those flukes. 
That's so cool. And I didn't really want to do it. I didn't, I wasn't sure I wanted to like make this big lifestyle change and just go tour a hundred nights a year. Right. Because it was, it's not a hundred nights a year. It's like, you know, both Umphreys and Mo, I think at the time anyway, it was like right around 90 or 95 shows a year. But when you add in all the travel days, it's it's at least double that. So it's a a major lifestyle change going from no traveling to. Yeah, traveling a lot. So it was just, it all happened so quickly. And I remember having the conversation with Topper and, and he said, uh, you know, you gotta you gotta come out to Vegas, or you know, I had a tryout in uh, right outside Syri- Syracuse, which is really weird, because I'm I was born in Syracuse. Oh, I'm from Buffalo, New York. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I was I was born in Syracuse. My first word was light. Really, a, like really. It's a true story. Yep. That's very cool. And and so that's where my tryout was. It was at a roller skating rink, and again, I'm blanking on the name, but you know, right outside Syracuse. And I'm sure somebody will correct me. Somebody else, somebody else emailing the show. And so it was two nights. That was my tryout, and I, I got the gig. And then Topper said, "Yeah, we need you to come out to, to Vegas if you, if you get it." This was before I knew if I tried out if I was going to get it or not. And I said, "Well, I just want to see if I'm going to get it. I don't know if I'm going to do Vegas." And he goes, "No, dude, you can't waste our time. Like, if you get it, you have to come. Like, we're not just giving you a tryout for the right. sake of it." Yeah. And I was like, "Oh man," because then I made it real, and I wasn't sure I wanted to like just never been on a tour bus you know yeah just to jump in at that level is a little bit daunting yeah because most people come up through the ranks ride the van for like umphreys they did it organically they rode in a van for 10 years and then they right they They like built up to it so they were like preparing for it whereas you you're just jumping i skipped a lot i skipped a lot of levels yeah um you know uncle sammy spent a lot of time in a van but i was the manager so i stayed at home in the home office i wasn't the tour manager Mm -hmm. in the early days i was um so yeah, so that was an amazing experience. I, I wish that I was better prepared for a lot of the non-creative aspects. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess there's just really no way to do that without just learning on the job. I guess I could yeah. have gone to like theater school, but yeah. that was not the path that I chose at the time. Right. So I had to kind of learn a lot of the etiquette and a lot of the um, planning side of things. And, you know, there's a, the whole sort of etiquette of when you're working with union crews that I just I had no idea of or like what a dark stage is mm-hmm. Do you know what a dark stage is no so when you work in union houses they pick times throughout the day that you know usually in hour increments where it's dark stage sometimes there's one at lunch sometimes there's one at dinner sometimes both and okay. you can't do any work okay. and it's basically to like guarantee that the union gets their break I think I'm not really okay. sure of all the details but I just okay. know it's very strict you can't do anything okay so we're at Radio City Music Hall for example that's that's a play that's a great example of a I was there with Mo twice mm-hmm. and you're rushing to get done by the time doors open and you have a finite amount of time like eight hours or whatever and then like an hour before doors they're like all right you have to stop and so that's like a great example of like I just yeah. didn't know so I hadn't in my head I hadn't uh, accounted for it yeah and I still don't really understand why I assume it's because again they need to ensure that they right. have you know workers' rights, which I support, of course. Absolutely. <laughs> but those absolutely. are, like, those, those little nuances. The little things that you don't realize until you're part of it, which, like, for me, like, with the podcast, I have zero experience in radio. You know, like, I, everything I've learned in the past year was totally hands-on, and, but I honestly think you learn more that way, because you messed up, and you had to fix the mistakes. You're like, well, I'm not doing that again. <laughs> you know, like, you're like, yeah, definitely not that. So you remember it more than I think going into like a school setting, you know, where they're just kind of like 
teaching at you. Like I learn way better hands on anyway. Totally. So that's that's kind of the only way I can better. learn is, is hands on. Absolutely. So Mo, you know, gave me this great opportunity, and I, yeah. I'm glad that they stuck with me when I really had no idea what I was doing, and I kind of just was forced to learn on the job. And I, I think you know the only reason I got the gig was because of my, you know, limited background in music. I was able to intuit where the you know the big improvisational peaks and valleys were going to be because that's like a universal language not to sound hokey but you know to me the jamming was no different than jamming alongside of uncle sammy or right. alongside my dad when i was eight years old playing a tambourine to nearly on down by the river or whatever right. um so i think i got the job because i i know the music well right and i was able to intuit and, right. and same with umphreys but all the other stuff I was clueless with. And so it was, it was kind of an uphill battle to kind of learn on the job. Yeah. So talk about your switch into uh, working for Umphreys. You started working for them in 2008, I believe. Mm -hmm. So how did the, how did the switch ha happen? How did that kind of go? Uh, well, Mo. Hi. Hi. Hey. Mo decided to take a hiatus. And oh, so yeah. they, they told us, I believe in like March of that year and I remember them sitting us down and saying you know we've never taken a break and we don't know how it's gonna feel but it'll be at least six months and you know we're probably coming back but we don't know because we don't know how we're gonna feel mm -hmm. and so we were all kind of like we had a six or eight month window to basically find other work in the interim yeah and just coincidentally during that break was when uh, Umphreys was looking for a temporary substitute you know that's redundant but they were looking for a sub for a few dates mm -hmm. and uh, so I was happy to, to jump in and help and I remember there being an, an immediate chemistry and you know it obviously being similar like to an outsider Mo and Humphreys probably sounds similar but obviously to mm -hmm. people like us right. there's there's a lot of difference and so yeah. again you know I felt very compatible following the improv, but I also noticed that there was a lot more notes and a lot more um, more of a metal edge, obviously. Mm -hmm. I think Mo comes from more of a Grateful Dead background. Yeah. These guys have varied backgrounds, but you know, half the band has like a metal background. Yeah. And so there's a lot more testosterone, and I had to learn how to interpret the jamming differently because with with Mo. If you if you look at like a set, I think on average I would you know follow Chuck solos and Chuck would take a lot of the big ripping solos. Not not to say that Al doesn't, but right. for some reason I just associate Chuck with the big you know set closing. Mm -hmm. I don't know why this is. I love Al. I, I don't know why I'm saying that, but I <laughs> I remember following Chuck the way that I followed Jake, and when he would go to these like shredding peaks. I would go to the strobes. That was the way I would interpret it. And, and when I started working for Umphreys, Umphreys, I realized that I can't do that because those moments happen more frequently. Mm -hmm. So with with Mo, it would be once or twice a set. And with Umphreys, I was noticing it was like once or twice a song. And so I had to figure out a way to you know, highlight those moments without strobing. And I, it's something I still struggle with, obviously. Like when they did the Anchor Drops album, mm -hmm. a lot of those songs were written in uh, all of those songs were written in an era 15 years ago where that was more common and now a lot of their songs are you know slower 4-4 time or not as mm -hmm. um, proggy 
for lack yeah. of a better word. Yeah. So it was a bit of an adjustment. Um, and, and one thing that I would do is do like that real slow moving thing. When the band goes faster, I try to go slower just because I ran out of places to go. Yeah. Um, so that was the biggest adjustment, just the, the differences in improv. So when you are doing a show, how much is programmed like ahead of time and how much do you, you know, like you said earlier where you're seeing things and you kind of adjust so how much you're already like you know know where you're going with it and how much is on your feet i, I like to describe it as kind of a hundred percent both okay i know that doesn't make sense mathematically but i want everything to be perfect and it's hard to do outdoors this, this weekend is a bad example because I was fixing things each day because the lights that go on the stage get moved around in between acts and the trusses were getting moved due to weather and due to, you know, people want them at different heights for different sets. But in a perfect world, in a normal indoor show at a theater, for example, I'd get everything perfect right up, you know, till the end of sound check or till we have to give up the stage if there's an opening band or whatever. And everything's perfect and I can walk in and just know that everything's going to be the way I left it because there's no weather to factor in or anything. But then the other 100% of the, the thing that you asked, right, about what is prepared and what is kind of happening on the fly, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then I'm recalling all of the things that I've programmed or that I, that I have in the library of cues, which is probably over a thousand by now just because it's I've been amassing it since my days with Mo right and so during the show I have to think about where I stored all those cues over the years mm -hmm. and I don't have the best system everyone has different systems mine is very much the way that I run my own life <laughs> again my poor fiance would attest because we <laughs> we are complete opposites yeah. when it comes to the way we store our things for example like my sock drawer versus her sock drawer that's a, that's a good analogy of like the way I run my lighting show versus the way that um, a traditional lighting designer, someone more organized, would run mm -hmm. their show. It works for me. Right. The well, same way it I works can, for you. I then. can find my favorite socks. Right. That's actually not true. I. You're always uh, digging through, and that's I can I'm never. Looking. That's that's a horrible. <laughs> she's right all along. I can't ever find my own socks. <laughs> I think that's I think that's the husband thing. Yeah, because my husband can never find his own taxi. Okay. I think so. Don't feel bad. I think it's a. But I literally, I, I have like, you would think like, okay, put all the cues together that are similar, mm -hmm. and I do that in in some, you know, these are all the cool cues and these are all the red cues, but mostly it's scattered all about, you know, and it's just the, the way things have happened over the years, and I've tried reprogramming things in in an order that makes sense, mm -hmm. and then my muscle memory is shot, and I can't find things. You're saying you anyway. There's Adam yeah. Bundy. Another. There you go. Thank you. Yeah, hey, you're very welcome. Yeah, good to see you, man. I like the new glasses. Thanks. It makes me look like I'm smart or something, right? Yeah. You are. Thanks. Yeah. See you, Red Rock. Be safe. Love you. Thanks, Art. Yeah, no problem. Um, so, where do you see the progression of lighting and doing shows in the next five to ten years? Well, it seems like video technology is greatly uh, enhanced every time, you know, like every six months or so. Yeah. Uh, lasers are becoming safer, so 
you know, they're rated now that if they hit you in the eyes, they don't blind you. Right. I mean, that's that's only been in the last few years. I remember as recently as like 10 years ago, there was an accident at a festival somewhere mm -hmm. internationally where people had eye damage. I don't want to mess with that, you know, but now, right. now they have um, moving head lasers. So that means, you know, n normally a laser, you think of it as like an overhead projector. You have to set it on an object and it shoots out, you mm -hmm. know, and it doesn't move. It, it appears to be moving, but really it's the laser that's moving, not the actual physical light, the way that our moving lights move. But now that's different. Now they actually have a moving head so you can control the pan tilt because you're not worried about it hitting people in the eyes. So that's a, that's a really big step, for, like in my opinion. Yeah, We used absolutely. lasers once last year in Denver. And again, it was because I could move them the same way I run a moving light. So I could very easily integrate them into my show. And that's a huge thing because if you think about, you know, playing a piano, that's kind of how I approach the, the console. So I only have two hands. And without completely rewiring my entire muscle memory and adding in like a, if I had to have a laser console to my left or my right, or in the old days you had to have, uh, not even the old days, like two years ago, you had to have a, a licensed engineer hit the button. And in most genres of music, that's not a big deal. You know, they might use it for one song and the guy hits it on the encore, but for a band, you know, an improvisational band where you want to hit every little note perfectly and improvise with the band, you can't trust somebody else to hit the button. Right. So that's like an example of, you know, you look at a band like, uh, or an artist like Pretty Lights, mm -hmm. you look at their light show or Bass Nectar, mm -hmm. those guys are just incredible LDs and they, or even uh, Johnny from the Disco Biscuits, mm -hmm. the way that they're able to run lasers now just as like another moving light fixture makes it really seamless. So I think combination of video, lasers, LED technology, what, what Fish is doing with the moving trusses is, one of, to me, and again, I, I notice the nuance more than the average person, but I think one of the biggest leaps forward just because of the fact that you know, like you're, you're moving the source of the light in a way that has never been done before. I mean, that's, that's really impressive to me. That was kind of mind-blowing when they, when they first started doing that. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think that's everything I have. Thank that you so much. Every... So that's all I have for this episode of the show. Anything referenced throughout this episode can be found in the show notes. And if you have any questions or comments about anything talked about in this show or any other episode, please feel free to reach out. I love hearing from you guys. So please don't hesitate to contact the show. How you can do that is in the show notes as well. And thank you so much for joining me. I'll see you around these parts next week. Much obliged.